This week, Chad and I want to welcome one of our favorite people, JJ McCullough, back to the podcast. JJ is the world's leading authority on Canadian and American culture, flags, universal monsters, fruit-flavored candy, authentic food and culture, censorship, pop culture, knickknacks, and politics. <laughs> and this is a great opportunity to talk to YouTube and... I'm always in awe of his ever-changing hair. Hey, uh, JJ, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me back. That was a fantastic intro. That is entirely what I'm all about. So <laughs> you did a great job summarizing. We have so many different places that we could start. I want to start with knickknacks, but I'm going to leave <laughs> knickknacks to the side. Uh, and I want to start with a piece of news that uh, Steve and I just read about not too long ago. Um, and I don't think it's rolled out yet, but apparently YouTube is removing the dislike button from their platform altogether. And I wanted a JJ hot take on that, and if you knew that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I obviously this has been making big news in sort of the YouTube sphere, and everybody has their sort of their hot takes on it. I must honestly say that this is not something that I have particularly strong feelings about one way or the other. Like, I mean, it, and it's it's wild to me that people get so agitated about it. I mean, every little, like, this is kind of a cliche, right? It's like every little tweak to the YouTube system gets people up in arms because people are very invested in the status quo and thus they become very threatened by it. I mean, we sort of, last time we were chatting a bit about shorts, right? Like that sort of stirred up people's emotions in very ferocious ways. And now, yeah, the removal of the dislike button. I mean, I guess... Like, a lot of people seem to think that YouTubers need more accountability. And, you know, fair enough, perhaps that is true in the same way that, you know, all celebrities who are sort of in the public space deserve some degree of accountability to their public. But, you know, the idea that the dislike button is something that is taken so seriously by YouTubers that the removal of it is this kind of blow to creator accountability, like that seems a bit sort of facetious to me. In part because I think that uh, YouTube is not entirely wrong when their argument against it is that dislikes can be very easily abused and that when you look at the most disliked videos of all time, I think it's hard to objectively say that those are the worst videos of all time, right? Like the most disliked videos of all time is like, you know, a YouTube Rewind from a few years ago and like several Justin Bieber videos. It's like you can take or leave those videos, but it's like they're clearly like not the worst that YouTube has ever produced. So, you know, it is it is a bit of a phony baloney metric. I don't know what you guys uh, think as far as that goes. I kind of in the same way. I was talking to Chad about this when last week and it felt like yeah, there's part of me that doesn't like it and part of me that does and part of me who really just doesn't care because as a creator, uh, we'll still get the dislike number. We'll still be able to see how many people hit the dislike button. It's just not a publicly available number. And I was in part of the testing of this when this happened a few months ago. And it was weird to not see dislikes on people's videos. And I would think at first, well, what do I care? But I do use that ratio as sort of a gauge of how relevant the video might be uh, or how believable 
it might but be. Wouldn't, wouldn't I don't views know. be the better metric, though? Because, like, honestly, like, now that you bring it, it up, be. like, I've, I have not paid attention to this metric at all, my likes to dislikes ratio. I just think of it entirely in terms of views. If the video is not being viewed, I assume that that video is a failure in some way, right? I don't sort of think about the dislikes as being the kind of the, the relevant metric as far as that goes. Well, let me give you an example. I was uh, looking for some way to fix a... Uh, a problem I was having with Adobe Premiere, an editing problem, and and I don't remember what it was, but I was looking for an answer to this question. And the video, one of the videos that came up had a lot of views on it, but as soon as I opened that up, I'd instantly noticed that it was like almost half dislikes. And so I was kind of already on alert of like, what's going on here? Why is this not valid information? And then a quick scroll through the comments and I could see recurring themes of people saying, well, you got this wrong. This is just wrong information. So yeah, I was led to that video by a high view count. But once I got there, I realized, and that was my first indication was that, that disparity. But then again, I don't really care. And that's the catch twenty two. I'll I'll decide whether or not it's worth you know investing fourteen minutes into this video by quickly just checking out the and exactly like you said, Steve. It, it, like if you're looking for like learning how to do something, seeing a lot of dislikes on a video might be a quick indication that it's like oh hey this video is out of date or it's giving an incorrect um, you know uh, information or whatnot. But then I realize it's like ah oh, now I'm judging the video by not watching it myself. And I'm just judging it off of what other YouTubers think. It's like, mm, now I'm doing the thing that I hate the most, which is like not finding out for myself. So I'm, I, I guess we're, so the answer is we're all, I don't care. We don't really care. <laughs> I mean, I, I can, I can tell you like a sort of anecdote about my own, I think one of my most disliked videos, right? So it's like, I've made two videos about the occult called the Fallen Gong, right? Which is quite popular. Those are two videos that people talk about a lot. And you know, my second video about them, my one that's kind of more in depth is tremendously disliked. And I know that's because, you know, the cult itself has mobilized its members to kind of downvote it, right? And so in that sense, I suppose I can be, uh, I can be sort of sensitive to sort of what you were just saying, Chad, that you know that it can be um it can scare people off and but if that scaring people off sort of dynamic is uh, abused right like if it is sort of if that if that uh you know if that sort of marketing aspect of it is abused by special interests to scare people off from a video that might in fact be a conveyor of useful information, then yeah, the sort of the, the principle of it can be self-defeating. And so I suppose in some ways that this is just kind of an exposure of how it's very difficult to have one size fits all policies for YouTube, just because the type of content is so varied. Like how two videos, uh, I think on some level deserve to be judged uh, both by, you know, by the user experience in a different way than like an expository piece of investigative right. journalism that's seeking to document the truth of a controversial topic or a political topic yeah. might be. Yeah, if you've got video on COVID, you're going to probably have both half likes, half dislikes just based on politics alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think, but it is true. It's any feature on YouTube is just, if YouTube removes a feature, adds it, or adds a new feature, people just get all worked up over it. They used to have the five-star rating system on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I think what <laughs> the problem back. was is it was basically people would mostly rate either one or five. So it kind of was a like or dislike is kind of what it was. And, you know, 
Well, now you can only like. So all of you people looking to dislike. The other issue is that, that you don't understand the context of a dislike. Like just disliking an entire video is strange versus like, I, I mean, Steve, you would know this. You can do a, a woodworking tutorial, which is totally fine. But if someone disagrees with, you know, the pentagram you have hanging on the wall, <laughs> thumbs down. They don't like the way you said a certain word or you referred to something or they don't like your face, thumbs down. So it doesn't really have as much context to it as maybe like a comment would or something like that which maybe leads us into another kind of newsworthy thing which is a popular youtuber um leaving or quitting the platform do we want to uh, say who this is do we want to get into the guy uh, well his name's william osman i, I yeah. only uh, just uh, he's about two and a half million subscribers and had a trending video i think it was a few weeks back where it called i quit or i'm leaving or this is enough uh, and in it, he explains that the negative comments that he had been getting on his videos had led him to get to the point where he just did not, he wasn't happy anymore and he did, just did not want to engage on the platform anymore. So do you read a lot of your comments? I do. I, I, I pretty like, I post my videos every Saturday and I tend to like quite obsessively read as many of them as I can on most of Saturday and into Sunday. I mean, after then I sort of get a little bit bored of it or they become a bit repetitive and you kind of get the sense of where the audience is at. But I do, like I, I read them quite quite extensively. So I, I watched this this video in question where the fellow is, is really quite dejected. I mean, it's like, you know, it's quite emotionally powerful. I mean, at the end he like quite literally breaks down and you know, his, his partner comes to comfort him and all of this. You know, that has just never really been my experience. Like, I get negative comments on YouTube. I don't get quite as affected by them. And I had a little bit of a difficult time, and I'd be curious to hear what you guys sort of had to say. Although, Steve, you posted quite a good rant about this topic that <laughs> I think I sort of broadly agreed yeah. with on your, on your second channel, where you seem to not really have a tremendous amount of sympathy for people that <laughs> sort of complain a great deal about their their negative comments. And and part of the reason why I think I agreed with your take is that you you talked about like how it is not difficult to come up with sort of coping mechanisms to deal with this problem, right? So like one way that I've dealt with, you know, to the degree I get negative comments and I don't get that many of them, but you know, you can you can just, you can A, you can not read them, you can block people. And, you know, I make very liberal use of that as, as most YouTubers I think do. Like, I mean, there's no point of, of tolerating, you know, trolls or just people that are operating in bad faith. You can be like Dr. Evil and just press the buttons and throw <laughs> them into the fire pit, right? Like you don't have to endure them, right? It's not a democracy here. And the other thing too is that you can, uh, block a lot of words that you just don't want people bringing up, right? Which is a tremendous uh, useful tool. Um, I was looking through my my list of blocked comment words the other day, and it's like you know a real <laughs> excavation of all the things that have pissed me off over the years. <laughs> me or, too. It's like a yeah. paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. So I mean, like there are there are there are ways that you can deal with this problem, and and I've made use of them, and it has sort of mitigated the sort of the negative consequences in my own sort of personal life, mental health, emotional well being, whatever you want to say. But you know. Um, I was talking, I was talking with actually past uh, Chad and Steve guest, Frank James, you know, the personality expert man yes. the other day, we were, we were talking about this and, and, you know, Frank is obviously a great master of sort of personality quirks and that, and he was talking about how like some people are just triggered by different things. And some people really are very triggered by judgment of others in a way that I personally am not, you know, uh, for anybody who's not aware, I used to be a political commentator on television for very many, many years. And as people might know, uh, political commentary is not always the, uh, 
you know, the jolliest of, of spaces to inhabit. People get no. pretty riled up about some of that stuff. <laughs> so, like, I, I guess, like, you know, my personality has always been geared a little bit towards being comfortable with being seen as a somewhat controversial or contentious person. And some YouTubers are not. Some YouTubers, I think, really do crave the, like, the mass approval and are really sort of bothered by the reminder or the existence of people who who are who are judgmental or who are you know angry or critical and and stuff like that and so i do sympathize that some people are just wired differently and are bothered by things that may not bother us yeah i think when i did a kind of a reaction video to that and for the most part i got pretty good response on that and i got probably more blowback on instagram just by posting hey i have this video you might want to watch but for people who thought that i was just not being very sympathetic or I couldn't empathize with somebody going through this um, <clears throat> and that it's not fair to compare that job to like real jobs. <laughs> I consider people who have to actually work hard for a living doing manual physical labor and don't get any kind of feedback for that. You know, they're just trying to put food on the table and here are some YouTubers going, oh, I got a mean comment. And that they that I wasn't being sympathetic and I am being sympathetic because I understand I've gotten those kind of comments myself. Um, I just think that there's a certain irony to the video that he made that there's a certain drama to those types of videos. And <laughs> it's the I quit YouTube videos. It's the uh, we need to talk video. And it, it, they follow this format of you're usually sitting on the ground. You're usually in front of a couch in, where you in could, front you, of something you can sit on. Yeah, sit <laughs> you never on sit the thing on you can the thing. Sit in front of the thing you can sit. You on. have to include the <sighs> heavy side and, 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 and the dramatic, the dramatic turning on of the camera at the beginning. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so I'm thinking all of this stuff is edited so the guy yeah. who you're doing this it's not like a live stream where that would seem more spontaneous all of these size and edits and everything are kept in there intentionally and for you to be talking about this kind of stuff which is really an inside youtube youtubers like to complain about comments to other youtubers that's fine and good but when you bring it to the larger audience you're almost inviting more of that <laughs> into you it's really it's counterproductive i think yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's actually a very insightful take. Yeah, the degree to which there is to some degree like very little true unvarnished authenticity on YouTube. And even a lot of what is presented as being such is sort of as you said like very carefully manipulated to in theory evoke in this case maximum kind of sympathy from the audience and sort of build yourself up as a sort of victim or a sort of yeah a sort of sympathetic character who deserves you know support and all of that and and you're right i think that that can i mean you know this is this is a difficult topic to talk about because you know it's it's kind of mirrors a sort of larger conversation that's happening in the culture more broadly which is you know like the idea of uh, the the idea of victim identities and to what degree people in in sort of modern you know kind of american culture are embracing the victim mentality too much or people clinging too hard to this as being sort of a central uh, you know pillar of who they are and as a sort of uh, you know kind of a larger orientation point of how they fit in into the broader world and i think steve that kind of what you said is is unto itself kind of a controversial mentality to express more broadly these days which is you know a bit of the like toughen up 
suck it up a bit more, like just kind of be a bit more of an adult, be, you know, as we used to say in the old days, be a bit more of a man about this kind of thing, you know, these kind <laughs> of, this kind of, and you know, like people say, like, this is sort of problematic and that you shouldn't be so judgmental towards people and that we should have natural empathy towards people's sort of lived experiences and lived truths. And so I don't know, like, it's, it's very difficult. And that's why I can just kind of go back to what I was saying before is that, you know, we all have different personalities. We're all wired differently. We all react differently to some things. And it is very possible, I think, to just reach the conclusion that some people might be too sensitive for YouTube, it, like, or at least that level of fame. And I actually sometimes wonder about that myself, because I do think that I'm a somewhat sensitive person as well. And I do wonder, like, you know, I have half a million subscribers right now. But, you know, if I got a million or two million or God knows however many, you know, Lord willing, if I became that successful, would I be able to handle that increased level of scrutiny? Or do I have some sort of ceiling on how much I can take, right? And I think that that's, that's something that I do have some sympathy for, is that some people maybe are just not ready for the level of spotlight and the level of attention and the level of public scrutiny that that level of fame, particularly when it's achieved in a short period of time, can bring into your life. So here's the rub. I get that you can look at like figuring out how to manage and deal with these negative comments because it's clearly just going to be part and parcel with what you're doing. One of the things that bothered me about the video, uh, and at the end of the video, there's a bunch of other creators who were kind of brought in to kind of do these. I didn't understand that part. Somewhat weird style videos where they almost didn't know what they were doing or w how this was going to be used. And they were just asked about mean comments and how that, and clearly as a YouTuber, people who have felt that like, oh, everybody's kind of like shoulders tensed up and whatnot. Anyways, my larger point was uh, something that William said earlier in the video where he's like, 99% of the comments that I get are amazing. They, uh, people who are just telling me all of these wonderful things, but I don't think about those ones and it's almost like you've managed to like not pay attention and digest any of the good stuff that people are saying however you really do seem to digest and personalize the mean stuff and quite often that's maybe because perhaps there's some elements of truth to it or perhaps it's something which makes you feel uncomfortable but not but the one thing i didn't like was putting a video on your channel to be watched by millions of your supporters he has two and a half million subscribers and all of the people that took the time to write a nice comment or an email or say hey william that video that you really got me through a tough period and you really helped me out and i remember when we first started the cleaning channel getting emails from people being like hey your channel actually has really kind of changed my life i'm i'm way clear and we never thought that that was the case and we never ignored those comments and not that he was ignoring them it was very easy to kind of put all of that onto a pile and that kind of bothered me because that seems to be a bit of a a thing with YouTubers where it's like, yeah, well, of course, everybody, of course, 99% of the comments are <laughs> yes, Well, yes. what about the 99% of the people who are now watching that video who did leave a comment and now hearing William say like, yeah, but that stuff doesn't really resonate with me. The thing that does resonate with me are the haters or the people who leave me in comments. And like in my, in my estimation, it's like, aren't you giving them exactly what they want they that's yeah that's that's such a tr that's such a tremendous point and i believe steve you made that point as well in, in your rant right it's that like you on some level it does it does seem it can come off as a little spoiled a little entitled a little sort of thinking that that yeah like that that's the default that like everybody should love you and that like you can just kind of like 
gloss over those because like that's obviously that's like the correct disposition (laughs) and then you and then you and you yeah and then you focus in on the on the haters and then by doing so you give them all of the power and in like literally they're the ones that are as they say living in your head right rent free right like you're sort of saying that your your sort of disposition towards your audience is going to be just dismissive and entitled towards the good comments, but then like hyper-focused and hyper-obsessive towards the, the negative people, which just seems like, yeah, that I, I think that you guys make a strong case when you sort of say that there's something kind of topsy-turvy about that moral universe and that people should, I think, learn to be a little bit more grateful for the amount of people that leave, you know, heartfelt supportive comments that are almost certainly much more like, much more sort of uh, thought goes into those comments. Like the commentator who is saying something, and you know, I know this because I get quite kind comments and I try to respond in kind when I, when I can, because I understand that like, you know, it is much in many ways kind of like more vulnerable and, and more sort of personal to sort of put yourself out there and to say that you really like someone or that you really appreciate them or to share an anecdote about your personal life in which they've helped you and that sort of thing. You know, I've had, this is wild to me and I am so humbled by this, but I get people that say that they have moved to Canada from different parts of the world because my videos have presented such an attractive image of this country, which is honestly not something that I necessarily <laughs> set out to do all of the time, but it's still like, I cannot believe that people have been as affected by my content that they would do something as life-changing as that. And so it's tremendously humble. And I try to keep those people in the front of my mind and realize like just how powerful and important that is. And like I said, it's like how humbling that is to me, as opposed to just thinking about some, you know, nasty troll who's, you know, having a bad day or is feeling insecure about himself and has to say something to sort of tear me down. Those people don't, I think, deserve the same level of, of headspace or attention. And it does, like I said, it seems it seems wrong on many sort of moral and ethical levels to care so much about people that are critical of you when, as the guy himself sort of asserted, and as so many YouTubers kind of carelessly assert, that the vast majority of their comments and their subscribers are are great supporters. I wonder how many YouTubers are just kind of reaching the stage where they uh, are finding out what traditional celebrities have kind of known for a long time <laughs> yeah. is that there comes a point where you just have to insulate yourself from all of that. And, you know, sometimes these, you know, A-list celebrities are given a bad rap for the, well, you're not relatable, you're on a pedestal, you never talk to your audience or anything like that. But you kind of understand, well, they sort of have to at that point. Arguably, it's easier for a traditional celebrity because they're used to like, once that's on, the, the interesting thing about YouTube is you start out by becoming popular because of your relatability. And I mean, it's the Emma Chamberlain effect. And then as soon as you become popular, now people are like, eh, this isn't as authentic and as relatable as it used to be. Now you've become successful at this. So that becomes the rub. But usually by the time you get to that point, you're you're used to the the back and forth and you're you're and I also don't think traditional celebrities like go into a movie to open themselves up in that way. And for some reason on YouTube people really like can and to your point, JJ, where the the partner comes in to to hug uh during that moment, as much as that's uh, like clearly that I'm sure in that moment there was a lot of emotion and a lot of whatever, but after the fact that was deliberately edited in and kept into the video and has been watched and rewatched a whole bunch of times. So it was almost like it was trying to position everybody to feel bad for me as opposed to like, hey, this is an issue which we should all be like trying to get better 
uh, at if that makes sense yeah yeah i mean it's 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 interesting it's it's sort of sometimes youtube feels like it's kind of reinventing the entire wheel of sort of entertainment culture right and so like a lot of these kinds of things are not new as 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 you guys were sort of saying like it's it's not new to the world of of celebrity it's not new to the world of entertainment right it's but youtube is sort of like a lot of these youtubers are not people that come from sort of traditional entertainment backgrounds so to them this kind of stuff is very new and very frightening and and i suppose that some of them to be fair don't have you know the same sort of support networks that like big movie stars have you know they don't have publicists and image managers and studios that kind of take care of them and provide them with the support networks that they need to handle things when times get tough and so I don't know. It, it does sort of feel like a lot of people are kind of feeling their way through this process. And then, you know, the audience responds and then commentators like us respond. And, you know, you wonder <laughs> if it's going to sort of equal out at some point. And that some of like the conventions of how to deal with things like the stress of YouTube fame become kind of more normalized or sort of the protocols and procedures in place become a little bit more standardized so that you get less of this kind of, you know, people feeling, I think, a little bit less adrift and less that they have to figure it all out on their own in this kind of entrepreneurial way. YouTube is built on that interactivity and being able to connect with your audience. And YouTube really wants you to connect with your audience. And yet I follow some channels that I'm pretty sure the guys making those videos never read their comments. But they're, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, Jeremy Johns, he's like the biggest uh, film reviewer on YouTube. And I don't think I've ever seen him reply to a comment. I don't know if he reads them or not, but he certainly doesn't reply to them. So I think you can have a successful experience on YouTube without that level of audience interactivity. Do, do you feel like people are more impressed that you're a successful YouTuber or that you are a columnist for like a major newspaper? Yeah, so I mean, I feel like we, we we talked about this a little bit last time. Uh, so for anybody that doesn't know, yeah, I am a columnist, a weekly columnist at the Washington Post, and it does depend a lot, I think, on the audience that I'm speaking to. You know, like there is a a bit of a generation gap into how seriously people take YouTube, whereas you know, I think that uh, you know older folks can immediately appreciate sort of the significance of being a columnist at a legacy newspaper in a way that younger people might not. So, but increasingly, I, I do feel like the shift is starting to happen towards being a success on YouTube is increasingly sort of seen as like the greatest success of all in our, in our culture, right? <laughs> like if you can be a if you can be a YouTube star, you know, then you're, you have you're, arrived. You're really something. But I mean, it, I do, it all comes down to that gold play button, though. It is, you know, like that's that's the real <laughs> sort of metric of. of <laughs> but it's like, I mean, I do I do think about this a little bit in terms of like my own influence because like I do have an aspiration to be an influential person you know I have political views and philosophical views and you know all sorts of opinions and takes on matters of culture and politics and all that kind of thing and I sometimes like do wonder through which medium am I affecting uh, the kind of change I want to see in the world more am I more affecting as a uh, columnist at this major international newspaper or am I more affecting as a uh, as, as a YouTube guy right and that's a question that I don't really have a good answer to and I've never really sort of figured it out and I mean for example like in the political world I think you are starting to see a lot of sort of 
political YouTubers become kind of celebrities or at least sort of like well-known within the kind of political sphere. But like, are they influential or are they just kind of known as being famous political people, if that makes sense, right? Like they, they just become a different style of celebrity that sort of traffics in a kind of, you know, political... Uh, you know, brand in the same way that I think a lot of the talking heads that you see on, you know, on Fox or CNN or MSNBC or whatever are not really influential. They're just kind of, you know, they're people that speak to a certain pre-existing audience and provide a kind of like politicized entertainment that has some of the characteristics of being legitimate journalism and commentary, but is not really in practice. Whereas in YouTube, I do think that because uh, or sorry, <laughs> I was saying that like the, the good thing about YouTube, however, like they sort of co the contrary to that is that I do think like the organic discoverability of YouTube is a little bit different than uh, than traditional media and that people can kind of stumble upon new voices and new thinkers in a way that I think is much harder to do with legacy media. Like if you're at the at the Washington Post, you know, I think you kind of know what you're you're in for, whereas, you know, perhaps on YouTube from one click to the next, you don't. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, because on YouTube, you're, you're getting absolutely everyone versus absolutely everyone who's just reading this newspaper. Mm -hmm. And when you mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, what kind of platform is best for making the change in the world that you want to make in the world? What, what kind of change do you want to make in the world with, <laughs> with your content? Well, I mean, I do want people to think differently about Canada than I think they might currently. And I include sort of international people and, and Canadians themselves and, and Americans as well in, in, in great uh, deal. So, you know, like I, I feel like a lot of my channel, when I talk about Canadian things, I try to push hard back against uh, stereotypes of this country. I think sort of simple, reductive thinking about this country. Um, you know, I try to push hard back against uh, anti-Americanism as sort of like the dominant flavor of Canadian nationalism. I want people to understand Canada and the U.S. as, as very similar countries whose destiny, I think, is very interwoven with each other. And thus, you know, I think that the great mission of this country in the, in, in the current century is, is closer integration with the U.S. I do try to push that message. I think there's problems with Canadian democracy I try to bring awareness to. You know, I think uh, my famous conflicts with the, uh, with the French Canadians which is sort of one of the most infamous dramas of my channel, I think is sort of based on a, on a very legitimate uh, issue within Canadian uh, society that I care a great deal about. Uh, but also, like, if we're talking about some of my, even my quote-unquote sort of lighter content, some of the, the cultural kind of stuff that I, I do, uh, is motivated by a similar desire to, I think, make people on this continent... Uh, more aware and appreciative of their own culture, you know, that that there is this kind of cliche that, you know, on this continent, we we don't really have a culture or that, you know, our culture is kind of indescribable. And, and, and I, I like trying to document the many of ways in which sort of life in North America is, in fact, quite culturally distinct and that it has a lot to it that's worth appreciating. And that at a time when many people supposedly feel very alienated and driftless and without a sense of identity or purpose. I hope that sort of in my own small way, I can kind of help bring attention to some of the many ways in which we do live in a very fascinating dynamic place that has a lot of things to be uh, appreciative towards and, and to feel a sort of cultural connection and perhaps a sense of heritage and legacy and, uh, you know, sentimentality and all of these other sorts of uh, important, I think, uh, parts of life. So. I don't know, like those are some of the some of the goals that I set out to do in my channel in my own small way, but hopefully without being a little too preachy or a little too uh, <laughs> kind of on the nose about it. 
Well, those are the kind of videos that definitely resonate with me and it makes me think about North America differently than I probably have before. You recently had a video on what is North America and was it, was that in the least bit controversial for you saying that really North America is Canada and the U.S. or the Americas as Canada and the U.S. The bigger argument I was making is that basically I don't like the adjective North American, right? Like I think that this is an adjective that Canadians almost exclusively use in order to pretend that um, that's you know that they have been a sort of co-equal partner in the creation of the culture of this continent. Whereas, as I say in the video, like if you know anything about Canadian history, you know that Canada developed va uh, like much much later than the U.S. and thus to you know the great extent like most of what is Canadian culture in a sort of day-to-day -day lived uh, sense is basically just American culture that has been sort of incorporated into Canada in a very natural and organic way because of how identical the the, the countries are in a number of different important uh, metrics. And so what I was kind of saying is that I think that we should sort of transcend the use of this term North American, and instead Canadians should be more comfortable just identifying that Canadian culture is to a large extent American culture, and that that's not really worth getting offended about because it is just a reality of, of the nature of this country, and that I think it's important to be appreciative and, and have a sense of gratitude and understanding of what your culture actually is instead of just clinging to these kind of politicized, insecure notions of what you would like the culture to be. And I think that Canadian uh, sort of like the powers that be in this country often really try to push the idea that the only good Canadian culture is a culture that is distinct from the US. And I'm kind of saying like, well, maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe a good Canadian culture can be a culture that is very much like the US. And maybe that's something that's fine to be proud of and happy about. Do you see any of that as changing? I know the last time you were on our show, we briefly talked about how a lot of Canadian culture is defined by, well, we're not the U.S. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do, I do, I, I've written about this in the Washington Post and, you know, I've made videos about it as well. Like, I do wonder if it is, I do wonder if it's breaking down. I don't know. Like, there's reasons for optimism and there's reasons for pessimism, right? Like, you could definitely say that things like YouTube have kind of globalized the world in a significant way. And certainly, like, a lot of young people, I think, are somewhat less hung hung up on, on kind of nationalistic identities than they used to be, just because, like, you... You talk with people, you collaborate with people all over the world, and you know your first thought isn't like, oh, this guy is from Canada, or this guy's from Britain, or this guy's from Hungary, or Thailand, or wherever. Like you sort of think, like if we can communicate, if we have similar interests, you know, we we sort of connect on a human to human level, and we don't really sort of think about the the cultural barriers because they're much less sort of significant in a world of sort of globalized communication and and increasingly in many ways globalized culture as well. You know, if you're making a a podcast about Avengers or whatever, right? Like you can be from anywhere in the world and you're all consuming the same product and in many ways sort of engaging with it in, in a kind of transnational sort of way. But, you know, then on the other hand, we also are, of course, living through a great era of kind of uh, political unrest and political populism. And a lot of political populism is based around appeals to nationalism that are based on a kind of sense of, of, uh, of fear and anxiety about the nature of a globalized world and what it means to be sort of have transcended, uh, you know, kind of national nationalisms and sort of traditionalism and these kind of old, uh, older notions of a kind of smaller, tighter, more homogeneous sort of community. 
And I don't know. I mean, I, I do think, though, that Canada and America are remarkable countries and that we, unlike pretty much anywhere else in the world, have always been defined by our diversity and are sort of able to make peace with that sort of diversity and are able to sort of sort of incorporate many different types of people and many different types of cultures and make something sort of coherent despite that diversity in a way that I think lots of other parts of the world find threatening. And I think one of the great sort of paradoxes, particularly in Canada, is that a country can sort of have that sort of attitude of inclusion and diversity and yet sort of still draw the line at the 49th parallel and say <laughs> nothing beyond this line we can find any sort of common cause with. <laughs> Do you still have the same type of content mix on your channel that you did kind of when it first started out and coming from where you were coming from and now, you know, cutting your teeth into YouTube? But now I see a lot of other content and commentary and subject matters coming. So do you have a revised content mix now or do you still just kind of do whatever you do whenever you want to do it? Well, I mean, I think that I think that I try to focus more on kind of the big, so like my three C's, I always come, come back to that. You know, it's culture, uh, countries, and Canada. And you know, before in my early days of YouTube, I would literally just make videos on any random thing under the sun because I was still trying to feel, feel my way through it and sort of discover what clicked with the audiences and all that. But now I really do try to stick with those three C's and I try to get a sort of even balance of them. You know, I, I feel like uh, last time I talked to you guys, I was uh, I was thinking like, oh man, I've made too many Canada themed videos in a row. I need to sort of mix that up. And right now I'm actually thinking I've made too many culture themed videos in a row. Like I, need I to love mix them that up. <laughs> I love them too, right? But I, I mean, I do, I, do, I don't want to ever get too, uh, to stuck in one track. Like I want to be able to have my channel have a sense of fluidity to it where I can be bringing up different topics, uh, you know, every week and that people are there for it because ultimately they're into uh, hearing me talk and hearing me communicate and sort of hearing my sort of unique style of analysis. And I don't want the subject matter to ever get sort of too, too narrow. But I mean, I think that this is, I mean, it's a good question, uh, Chad. And I think that this is something that we all that any YouTuber who's been a rune for a long time inevitably struggles with at some level, right? Like, how do you keep the sort of the freshness going? How do you keep a sort of sense of, of, of life in the channel and prevent it from getting too, too rigid? And I, I do sometimes wonder if as much as I am loyal to these three C's as kind of the cornerstone of what my channel is all about, if there's a danger that at some point, even those sort of three concepts, broad as they are, might get a little too restrictive. Is there one C that performs better than the others? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I, yeah, I don't know, actually. I mean, I've, I've had success with all of them in different proportions. I, I do think that Canada stuff tends Canada. to... No, no, no. Actually, I'm not going to say what you think I'm going to say. I actually think Canada oh. stuff performs the worst of the three. I mean, as much as a lot of people think that I'm like the Canada guy and that's what I'm all about, it's like I do think that Canada stuff has a more limited appeal. As much as I would like it to be otherwise, when I look at my most successful videos of all time, I would say they're, they're usually in the sort of the cultural space. Although now, you know, shorts have really sort of screwed everything up for me because all of my <laughs> most successful videos are shorts and they're all, in many cases, like some of my most frivolous topics are now my most popular videos, which has kind of blown my brain because I don't know what people want of me anymore, so. It's hard to judge a channel when you see so many shorts on there, isn't it? Because it's a totally different thing. It's two separate types of content you're producing. And I gotta say off the two things. First of all, your shorts are some of the best on the platform. Absolutely the best. 
wow, you do a really good job of putting everything into that 60 seconds right up to that 59 <laughs> second mark, I think. Um, and secondly, you are one of the very few channels that I watch every video as it comes out on Saturday. I actually look forward to your videos. Um, there's very few channels that I, I really want to watch every video. And I know it's because no matter what the topic, even if I look at the title and I think, eh, maybe I'm not that interested in it. As soon as I start watching it, your take on it is so interesting that it just draws me into watching, watching the entire video. They're really well done. Well, thank you, Steve. That's very, that's very kind. And I mean, that, that means a lot to me because I, it was like what I was just saying before. Like, I, I do hope that my audience ultimately trusts me enough to do basically what you said. So even if the subject matter doesn't seem like it's the most, you know, thrilling concept at, at first glance, that hopefully that there's trust that I will be able to make it interesting. And I think like that that's the kind of relationship I try to have with my audience. So it means a lot to me that you would, that you would say that. I mean, it's uh, the other thing, like the shorts thing is just like, that has just been such a, it's been, it's been really weird for me because like, I'm, I'm happy that you said that. And I mean, I know objectively I am quite successful at shorts and I, I it's, it's made me kind of an evangelist for shorts, right? Like <laughs> I think every YouTuber should be into shorts because like yeah. it's been great for me. So clearly it would be good for everybody else. But you know, a lot of YouTubers like, you know, they're, they're kind of skeptical of it and then they'll make like one or two and then they you feel like they're making their first short like with great reservation. And then when that short isn't immediately a success, they're kind of like, oh, I knew this was a bad idea. Like it's just, it's, it's <laughs> never going to work, you know, see, exactly. And so I don't know, it's like I've stuck with them. Like after I finish this, I've got a short like in the hopper that I got to get finished. And it's just like, I, I, I love the challenge of writing in a short condensed way. I love the challenge of seeing how much I can communicate in a short way. So I guess it's kind of like, even if they weren't super successful for me, I'd probably still be doing them anyway, just because I find the format so uniquely stimulating creatively. And I just, I, I don't understand why more people are not into that. But then again, you know, a lot of people find a short format very, uh, you know, intimidating. A lot of people find the whole kind of aura around it very gimmicky. I mean, downtown in Vancouver where I live, you know, there was a big billboard. It's like YouTube shorts. Like YouTube is hyping this to such a degree that I can, you know, with Ed Sheeran and all this, I can see it being a little obnoxious to people because, and it's so like self-evidently, like they're trying to, you know, kill TikTok. So, I mean, like the, the, the motive, I think sometimes strikes people as a little bit disingenuous <laughs> as well. But then, but the other thing too, though, that I would just say, as long as I'm on the sort of the shorts rant here, is that <laughs> like the degree to like they can they can kind of scramble your 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 sense of yourself as well, just in the sense that like I'm well aware that like the vast majority of the views that I get on my shorts, and like I have many many shorts now that have over a million views, but it's like the vast majority of those views are not coming from like the standard JJ audience, right? They're coming yeah. from the short shelf, you know, the the organic discovery mechanism there, and uh, which means it's it's like kind of difficult to know exactly what success with shorts actually means in a practical sense. Like it means that I'm successful with with randos, I guess, and that I can make content that's like randomly fun to stumble across. But like, is that like, what do you do with that information when it comes to sort of building your own channel or, or using that 
that feedback to determine what sort of content people want from you, particularly when it comes to like your longs, right? Yeah. Like do your longs and your shorts, do they have to be like deeply uh, in simpatico with each other? I don't know the answer to this. I think that one of the mistakes a lot of creators make is thinking that YouTube is supposed to be only one thing and that you, you really can't deviate that. When in fact, YouTube has a long history of always bringing in new products and features. They're just now, just the, yesterday, I was reading about how now YouTube is wanting to get into the podcasting platform and start to bring oh, yeah. in a, a podcast app. They've got YouTube Music. They've got all these different things. That, and I think that the key to creators to, and further to your point earlier about kind of keeping up with this and staying relevant, is you just always have to be trying the new stuff to keep your channel fresh. I think that scares a lot of YouTubers. It totally does. I think does. YouTubers out of every single group of people on the planet are the most gun shy, nervous. I don't want to upset the apple cart because if I change a keyword in my description, I might lose this number three ranking on this, you know, search results or whatever it may be. And that's what it was for us at least. It was like, and Steve, you went through this where it's like it, been producing the same type of video for so long so long and people get so used to you just being this uh you've done it brilliantly jj because you just bring jj to everything so everything's just a different bite-sized version i'd love following you on twitter because jj on twitter is amazing uh, a, a short version of JJ works really well with the shorts. You also use like your community tab and you'll ask really engaging, hard hitting questions. Like if a candy is red, what flavor would you <laughs> automatically assume it's a big? And that might sound, it's just like some little throwaway thing, but the engagement and the whatever really shows how you're, you're keeping it within the silo of the things that you want to talk about, but you're using different delivery mechanisms. And I think that really freaks a lot of YouTubers out, especially when you've just been used to like your 10 minute, how to make a thing video. And now, you know, this TikTok thing comes along and the short video becomes popular. And I think a lot of people are just like, well, this isn't for me and I don't want to upset. I'm going to start uploading this and all my audience is going to leave or YouTube will stop recommending my other videos. And it just, ties us all into a knot and we, you, you, you don't you end up doing nothing because you're just paralyzed by like not wanting to do anything because you're right we did we did one and it looked like we were held at gunpoint to do a short and, and that was it it, it didn't get a million views so we're like well we can't do another one but uh, it, it's been interesting to watch you because you've stuck with it and now it's it's not such an important part of your channel but like it's this awesome other um way to access you and see you present a piece of information or whatnot has it led to like you just recently passed half a million subscribers congratulations has that led to a lot of the growth because i know steve got a bunch of new subscribers simply through the the shorts doing well yeah i think i think it has like my channel has grown quite a lot recently and you know i can't say this with you know complete scientific authority but the only big variable that I would say has changed is that I have started doing shorts now. And, you know, now I get like, you know, at least a thousand new subscribers a day, which is really exciting. And like, that's a level of growth that I've never had in the history of my channel. 
But, and the only thing, yeah, again, that I can correlate it to is that I do shorts and that, you, I mean, when you're watching shorts on the short shelf, which I encourage all YouTubers to do, because I think it's also difficult to be overly judgmental to the shorts experience if you haven't gotten into the habit of consuming shorts as well and sort of seeing how the format works. But, you know, when you are consuming shorts on the short shelf, it is very easy to click subscribe. You know, the stuff is being blared at you. And if it's something seems, and I've done this many times when I'm watching shorts, like if the content seems remotely stimulating, you'll click sort of subscribe at, at, a, at a moment's notice, right? And so it is it is very good, I think, for developing a bunch of uh, followers that way. But the question is, as I was sort of getting at before, like, are those high quality subscribers? Are those people that are going to be in it for the long haul? Or are these people that are, you know, just the kind of people that, you know, thoughtlessly click subscribe and then they're not like you, Steve, obsessively watching every video I put out. They like quickly <laughs> sort of forget who I am. It's like, who's this weird guy with the mustache? Like, right. what's his deal? And it's like, you know, so I don't know, like it, it remains to be seen because, you know, as much as I'm getting a million, like I said, it's like as much as I'm routinely getting a million views on, on my shorts, I'm not routinely getting a million views on my long videos. So it's it's not like it's, it's obvious that, you know, it's it's a much different audience. And even the people that are subscribing through shorts are not necessarily in it for for the long haul, so to speak. So it is it's it's a confusing metric and it's it's uh, it's just one more sort of source of the ambiguity of the YouTube experience but the one thing i wanted to say chad because i think you really hit on a very important point as well is just this anxiety of the fragility of YouTube success right which i think is almost I don't know. I, I feel like it might be useful if someone made a video talking about like how, I mean, this would be very sort of insular in its appeal, but it's like that YouTube success is not nearly as fragile as YouTubers seem to think, right? Like your, your success does not evaporate overnight because you changed a keyword or because you started using a different type of thumbnail or whatever, right? Like people need to, I think, have a more kind of mature understanding of, of what sort of success and failure looks like on YouTube and what causes one and what causes the other because it is like whenever and I'm as guilty of this as anybody but whenever you have conversations with YouTubers as I'm sure you guys have have oh, you have many many times I'm sure you've noticed a sort of an undercurrent of kind of nervousness and anxiety yeah, and that's a good and, point and, you know yeah it's so true we all kind of feel that if we have one clunker of a video that well that's the beginning of the end and uh, i think a lot of it is just especially for youtubers is so many of them are just kind of new to the game They're, they've only been doing it for a short time and so as somebody who has been doing this for a long time uh i could i can confidently say that there's a lot of ups and downs but overall it just kind of levels out and it's you can certainly make a career out of YouTube if you aren't expecting to be one of the top tier celebrity YouTubers. You can have a perfectly good rewarding career at that kind of mid-level where you just kind of trudge along. I know I've been doing this for years and I'm perfectly happy with that position. Maybe this is the next video for your second channel, a follow up to that. See, you See? just turn it into, yeah. just turn it into like a, a commentary channel, Steve. <laughs> I, you know, I actually kind of want to do that, but I just, I never really feel like I have the time to devote to that. Well, it's, it was interesting to me to see your, your your rant about the mean comments because, like, you know, I'm somebody, you know, my my background is in opinion journalism, right? And so I have a, 
I like to think I have a good sense of when people are sort of good at the commentary game. And I was very impressed, Steve. Like you, you did a very well oh, sort you. of structured argument and it was very persuasive. And, you know, you have a good sort of presentation and all that. And it was a side of you that, frankly, I'd never seen before. Right. Because mm. I've seen your videos and I've listened to this podcast a million times. <laughs> but, you know, like hearing you just be kind of like your unvarnished, opinionated self, I thought was very refreshing and was very was very powerful and, and persuasive. And so I, I definitely think that. And that style of commentary, I think, the sort of the contrarian kind of angle is something that you don't hear a lot in kind of meta YouTube commentary, which I does I do think tends to be based a lot in a kind of conventional wisdom, sort of hive mind kind of consensus yeah. take on a lot of topics. And so, so hearing a bold opinion was 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 refreshing. I think a lot of it also for me comes down to uh, having a lot of experience of doing YouTube videos and just age that I, I kind of know how to approach a topic like that and I make sure I write it out so I know exactly how far I could take it without it being mean-spirited without it coming off as an attack and just kind of knowing that those boundaries and and think questions that might come up such as I mentioned like teen youtubers you know, that's a whole different topic of them experiencing online cyberbullying because they're dealing with kids they see in real life every day and they, they're not equipped for a lot of that. So I didn't even want to touch on that, but I wanted to make aware that that I'm aware of that topic and that that's a separate thing. So I think a lot of this just comes with experience and that's why the video I was responding to itself almost came across as somebody who probably just doesn't have a lot of experience in dealing with this stuff because there's certainly no way I would make a video no matter how upset I was about something sitting on the floor heavy sigh somebody coming in putting an arm around me and those kind of things because you're just opening yourself up to more of of that same kind of stuff that you don't like can you tell me what makes a good short as far as you're concerned Okay. Um, so that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I definitely think you have to have a very clear, uh, purpose to it. Like there's a very clear, like certainly when I'm making shorts, like I try to focus on uh, a single concept, a single idea that has a very clear, you know, kind of like beginning, middle and end. So like there's a very, very clear purpose that's animating the short. I have one idea, one piece of information that I want to convey with the short. I've seen people like try to cram in too much stuff and then it becomes kind of confusing and discordant because it's too busy and it's too fast paced and the viewer kind of gets discombobulated by it. So like you have to you have to have real sort of clear purpose to what the short exists to do in the minds of the audience. You know, when I make my shorts, it's like, for example, like I'm making a short right now about the, there's this kind of like urban legend that's going around about like that President Macron in France changed the color of blue in the flag. And so I'm, I'm making a short that just kind of says like, what do we actually know? And here's what we actually know. And here's what the rumors say. And just like, just kind of like a little chunk of information about this somewhat frivolous topic that's in the news. Right. And the other thing too, is that I do think that just the nature of the kind of the short attention span uh, nature of the medium is that it really does kind of have to be very fast paced. So you kind of have to have something that grabs people's attention, like within the first second, right? Like you have to say, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> and you kind of have to, I think, talk, you know, I talk obviously naturally a little bit fast and, you know, so I think I work well in the medium that way. Cause you kind of got uh, high energy, bring it in, bring it in. Lots of graphics, splashy, 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 right? Like just so like people get the sense that this is going somewhere from the get go. 
right? Like, I think that, like, if you had, I mean, it, and it's different than, like, with a long video, right? Like, long video, you can kind of sort of warm people up, kind of gradually have a slow sort of lead in and all of that. But with a short, you know, it, it has to be very obvious. The short has to have a clear purpose, and that purpose has to be obvious within seconds of watching it. And the, and the message of the video has to be conveyed, you know, in a kind of rapid fire, quick and stimulating way that conveys the information as, as efficiently as possible, which I think requires using lots of graphics and cuts and, 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 you know, just good writing as well. Like that's, I suppose, the other part that I should emphasize is that you have to be very careful with your words. You know, I script all of my shorts. They're all about 170, 180. Sometimes I can get to 190 words. <laughs> You're a fast every talker. Word, I am a fast talker, <laughs> but every word has to be chosen very carefully and like yeah. script it really well to make sure that you're only conveying the information that needs to be conveyed. Because one word can change the entire context of the entire thing and just get really someone can. will get wrapped. I mean, Steve uh, was mentioned that he wrote the 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 script for his video, and there were just I think we went through it, and there was just a couple words that y yeah. you ended up changing simply because it's like if I said this, people are just gonna yeah. Get here's an example. That. Chad got a great call out for me because I actually sent him my script on him. I'm like, what do you think about this? Do you think it's going too far? And he said I would change one word, and right at the end of the video, I when I was suggesting YouTubers block people, and, you know, if they have um, you, you said, comments. Yeah. You, YouTuber is your YouTube is your home, so you can yeah. You you said uh, what I said uh, on there is I says you need to censor your channel censor. and he was like no you should probably not use the word censor on there what do, what do, what do uh, you uh, boundaries Just I set boundaries. boundaries is what you so suggest saying like, the exact yeah, same better, thing yeah but hearing Steve Ramsey talking about YouTube and use the word censor, everyone's just you were so like, right. That would have censor. been the one yeah. thing yeah. that just everybody hang would up have, on that one word. They would have latched mm -hmm. onto that one thing. That's um, interesting that you were talking about making it look like a short video or a TikTok video where it's like when it comes down to it, the writing and the delivery, that's that's your special sauce. That's what JJ is great at. But it's it's interesting that you're uh, you're adding to the aesthetic or you're framing your content with like all the fixins that people would be used to. Lots of text on the screen or like quick cuts or whatever it is. Um, did that come just from like you realizing it's like, hey, this should probably look like a traditional short video or did you feel it actually added to the content? I mean, I, I think that I guess the way that I sort of come at it is that like the short is basically just like the condensed version of what you would make if it was a long, right? So yeah. it's like my, I'm trying to make long a thing, by the way. <laughs> I, I like that, I noticed that. <laughs> but it's like in, um, in, in so like in like a normal long JJ video, right? There are lots of graphics, there are lots of sound effects and all the rest of it. So the 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 short version is less that I'm necessarily trying to like emulate a, a certain style that is other than my own, and more just that I'm trying to con condense all of sort of my stylistic elements into as short of a compact package as possible, right? So as if you know, if like normally I would do, I don't know, like a pop up every uh, you know thirty seconds in a short I'll do a pop-up like every three seconds right so it's just it's just kind of a more condensed uh, summary there's an analogy in here somewhere that I can't quite think of where you have something that's like the condensed I suppose it's sort of like a, a TV commercial versus a, a TV program right like they they have a lot of sort of aesthetic similarities I mean they're all shot and they have actors and they have scripts and all that kind of thing but you know a, a TV commercial is just much more kind of punchy and much more condensed and there's a like anything that is not 
immediately necessary for the conveyance of the information is kind of chopped out. Actually, another another good analogy, if I may say so, is uh, I remember I did a video once on uh, minimalistic caricatures, yeah. right? Like what it takes to sort of like draw a person and capture their essence of their face. You know, if we draw Richard Nixon, we just draw a big nose and big black eyebrows and you can just kind of draw a big oval and it'll kind of register as him. And I do think like a lot of effective communication is sort of based on that principle. You try to figure out what is the essence of the message that I'm trying to communicate and then just cut everything else out. And that's the case when it comes to writing a column for a newspaper that has a hard word count. And I think that's also the case when it comes to to uh, to making a, a script for uh, a medium that requires a 59 second uh, hard limit. And see, I think this is where YouTube shorts differ from TikTok. A lot of people, it's really funny because I, when I post shorts, at least at the beginning, I would get a lot of comments from people saying, this isn't TikTok, we don't want this. And I would think, I'll bet you've never even watched TikTok. I'll bet <laughs> yes. you, just judging by you, that this is not your thing anywhere. Um, but I think that the YouTube is, the approach to YouTube to me seems different than TikTok. It seems more, the successful shorts are the ones that are a little more produced and thought out. Yeah, even though think, YouTube has their like little shorts camera you could use on your phone, but I don't really see a lot of shorts. Maybe it's just the ones that are on my short shelf. I don't see a lot of those coming through my feed of people who just grab their phone and shoot a short. No, I think I think you're right. I think that the, the key variable would just be that YouTube shorts are made by YouTubers, yes. who I think are a somewhat different demographic and perhaps a little bit more serious and substantial people than people that are only making content for, for TikTok and have only ever made content for TikTok and only have aspiration to make content for TikTok. But you know, it's it's but it is true, like what you're sort of saying, is that I think that there's a kind of like a culture clash between the YouTubers and the TikTokers that has sort of bred, and not only just the, the creators, but the YouTube uh, viewers as well, like the YouTube audience. And I think that that's bred a bit of sort of like snobbishness that has made people a little bit allergic to anything that reeks of the other platform <laughs> that they define themselves in opposition to, you know? So that's that's kind of a stigma that that we as creators kind of have to help people get over a little bit. Do you remember Vine? I do remember Vine. Yes, uh, were, that's were I think you... where some of the, uh, the 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 teen heartthrob YouTubers of today came from. They the, did, the Hall yeah. Brothers and all that. Yeah, Cody Co started. Cody Co came yeah. from. Yeah, a bunch of YouTubers. On uh, your milk crate short, oh, I yes. got uh, by, which is awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, I got a viewer discretion before. Yes. Like I got like, a, are you old? And okay, was that just that one, or do you have that with just your content in general? That this the, the YouTube. I'm glad you brought this up because that's an interesting story. Like that is my only video that I have ever made that YouTube actively suppressed. You know, people get on their high horses a lot about their conspiracy theories. Oh, YouTube is not letting my viewers view this. But like YouTube, like they they demonetize that one. They yeah, they put this like age restriction on it. Like I have that video is like seen as very toxic and very dangerous. And you see, it's like it mo almost all of my sub all of almost all of my shorts have like at minimum like 200,000 views. You know, many of them have million, half a million, whatever. That one is the only one I've ever made that has less than 100,000 views. And it's because YouTube has actively suppressed it because it's about, in a kind of tangential way, it's not really about the milk crate challenge. It's more about like the politics of milk crates as an object. But YouTube, uh, ever since the great Tide Pod challenge of, oh, 
12 or whatever. Oh, they, that's uh, what it is. They have really come down hard on anything oh. that seems dangerous prank adjacent, right? And so they have really uh, singled that video out as one that's too hot for YouTube. And so <laughs> you can only really watch it if you're a dedicated YouTube uh, or dedicated JJ uh, fan. So it's, it's funny. It's funny to me, though, just because... You know, people, like I said, people get on their high horse a lot about politics and sort of contentious topics and their conspiracy theories about YouTube not wanting you to make videos about this or that. But it does seem like you make videos that are in any way adjacent to dangerous pranks. And that's a great way to make content that nobody will see. And here, that, that whole craze is pretty much dead already, isn't it? Are people it still is, doing the is. milk crate? I, I don't think so. <laughs> they don't <laughs> last long. A good two weeks, yeah. Yeah, there's so many of those on YouTube. I remember the ice bucket challenge was a big oh, one yeah, yeah. a while back. <laughs> For sure. But uh, people in the States have milk crate. I mean, I guess they do. Do they just put their boxes of milk? Because in Canada, we have bagged milk. No, uh, we don't have that in Canada. I... <laughs> we have Ontarians have that. I made a whole video of this. <laughs> yeah. In Ontario. In Ontario, uh, which we, is which is Canada, as we all know. You know, my my I, I let me tell you the story. Like I always love my, my 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 grandmother was from Ontario, and she would often say Ontario when she meant to say Canada. In fact, she would often say Toronto when she meant to say Canada. Yes. So, like, I've I've always grown up like as a Western Canadian with a particular apprehension for this Toronto is the country sort of attitude. I've. I've heard that there's parts of the country outside of Toronto, but inside <laughs> Toronto, we have milk crates. And I actually have always been under the because uh, whenever we release a video which uh, shows our fridge or something, it like, just blows people's mind that our milk comes in uh, bags. And I thought milk crates only existed to hold like bags of milk, but I guess not. I guess they can hold cartons of milk or whatnot. Um, but uh, the, 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 the elite, illegality the illegalness of uh -huh. owning or reusing a milk crate is 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 actually that harsh just for using something which is uh, uh you you actually have milk crates yourself i use milk crates uh to like to store stuff and whatnot i had no idea about the the stamping i i'd never taken the time to actually read the side of one and realize yeah. that it's illegal to do this yeah so is ultimately every... what i'm getting at as I sort of say in the short, yeah, every milk crate in Canada or the U.S. is stamped with a warning label. You know, they're all produced by the local sort of dairy authorities in any state or province. And, uh, you know, the warning label basically says that use uh, other than the authorized use from, by the dairy company is, is prohibited by law. And this is because the objects are so inherently useful that there's been a big problem over the decades of a particular grocery store workers stealing them to bring home or to give to their friends or even to sell them on the black market, not only to people that want milk crates, but they sell them to like black market plastic dealers, which I find to be a kind of hilarious, weird subculture because, you know, the, the plastic is in abundance and you know it can be melted down or chipped down and used i for god knows what but apparently there's some market for this but you know the the dairy companies still to this day claim to lose millions and millions of dollars of having what is rightfully asserted to be their property stolen by rogue uh, grocery workers or the public at large I'm, you know, uh, people have done this. Like when I was a young person, I remember swiping uh, milk cartons from behind the grocery store at the end of the day and that kind of stuff because you want something to put your, uh, you know, your toys in or whatever. So it's 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 a legit it's a legit problem, and it's 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 kind of unfortunate to me that a video that I thought kind of brought this interesting issue to light has now been so suppressed because and it's that was adjacent it. to a dumb a dumb because it wasn't prank. about the challenge at all. 
No, no, it was just, no. I mean, that, but you know, this is, this is me trying to think that I'm so clever that I can capitalize on the craze <laughs> of the moment and get some views, but instead I, Icarus-like, have flown too close to the sun and uh, got uh, burned accordingly. See, so. I don't think we, I don't think we have milk crates in the U.S. Or maybe it's just where I live. I no, you know. do. They're all over mm -hmm. the, they're all I mean, other the than you, I, I can imagine going to like Target or Home Depot and buying one, but I, I don't know why, because I don't get, I just go to the supermarket and get a gallon of milk. But if you go to the supermarket, you'll probably see like the milk will often be stored in the crates, even in the grocery store. A lot of the times, oh, okay. like if you open the if you open the cooler door and look right. like past the display, you'll see in the back they have all of the usually milks being stored in the crates. And the little imitation ones they sell are usually really, really thin plastic. I think the reason why the plastic is so desirable is because it's such a heavy duty, like thick plastic, and I, I'm. I don't know. I, apparently there is an, <laughs> a, a, another market for it. Uh, one of the questions I did want to ask is, what is, um, what is the thought process that goes into deciding where you're going to put your JJ title card in a video? Because <laughs> oh, I've been watching right. a video. And one of the videos I was watching, and you put that shit at like five minutes and 40 seconds into the video. Go, go, oh, go. Man. We're really deep into the JJ lore now. I mean, people that are listening to this that are perhaps not super familiar with my oeuvre might be confused. But basically, like, yeah, in every video, I have a title card, you know, and uh, the title card appears for like a, a split second. It makes this Mario effect and then JJ consumes the, the screen for a brief second. I mean, I did that on purpose because I frankly find a lot of people have really long and kind of obnoxious uh, title cards. But yeah, I mean, I just, I put it, I guess, at a feel where I feel there's a kind of like natural break in, in the, that distinguishes the introduction of the video from the meat of the video. And I like to put it at the sort of where I feel is a kind of natural break between the two. But sometimes my videos have like a really long intro and it takes me a long time to set up the premise of the video before I get into the examples. And so, yeah, I, I think I probably can think of the video that you were describing, because I remember thinking of that as well. It's like, hmm, this is pretty late for the video. This but is then deep I've, in the video. But then I've but done one where it's like in the first, it's done ones where it's in like the first 30 seconds of the video. So it's, uh, it's but I kind of like that, you know, I kind of like having a, a kind of gimmick that I can kind of be super flexible with and, yeah. and kind of surprise people with a little bit. Well, you're developing a lot of these whole like trappings around your channel. I don't know what you would call that, but things that are like to just, exclusive to what you do that kind of, I guess your branding, you would call that. Um, your intro, your hello friends. I actually sometimes feel like I don't have enough of those gimmicks. Uh, really? Were you gonna say, were you gonna ask another gimmick related question, Chad? Oh, uh, the follow-up question was, uh, uh, you mentioned that the sound effect, I was gonna say, what is that sound effect? Because I couldn't quite place oh. my finger on what the <laughs> okay. sound effect is. So, I mean, I use a lot of sound effects from, from Mario, obviously, because I was like a big Mario fanboy when I was young and I like to use sort of Nintendo, classic Nintendo sound effects. So that is the sound effect, I believe, if you guys have played Super Mario World, the classic Super Nintendo, uh, game when Mario is on Yoshi uh, Yoshi is much stronger at jumping on bad guys than Mario is and so when Yoshi jumps on bad guys they like sort of pop and explode into this kind of like noise and that's the noise that it makes when Yoshi jumps on a bad guy it kind of goes Poosh! and it makes a kind of I don't know how to describe it it's kind of like a explosion with a chime kind of effect to it that I just yes. think is a really kind of compelling sound so that's the one I use we're asking the hard questions. You, you are. I'm, I'm very impressed. I, I like it when people notice this kind of nonsense. 
But I wish I wish I had more like honestly sometimes I wish I had more gimmicks like there are channels that are just so dense with kind of like lore you know like where yeah. they have so many in jokes they have so much of their own vocabulary well that has to develop naturally I think it just organically in a lot of cases otherwise it does it can seem really forced especially when like new YouTubers have like a cutesy name for their audience yeah, or something yeah. you know like hey JJNs or something <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, Don't go with JJ. It's like they've all read Primal Branding. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true, because and then it's, it's it's more like, you know, that you're copying sort of the, the form rather than like the substance, right? Mm -hmm. Like those kind of cutesy gimmicks, like nicknames and that kind of thing, like those don't exist on their own terms for their own sake. In theory, they represent a kind of like natural affection that has grown between the creator and the consumer. You know, you can't, if you just start from the beginning imposing one, it kind of lacks that kind of naturalness. And I think people... Or is some uh, instinctively, I think, turned off by. And, and it's kind of fun when they when they come across organically and they evolve. I have some of those on my channel, and every once in a while, I'll throw in one of those old kind of memes of my own stuff that I would do. Like, I, there's like an extra fancy meme I would have on there with a the little graphic that would come up. And whenever right. I do that, it's just like so many people love that who remember those from way back in the day. And so it's kind of a it's a little Easter egg, I guess, for those people. Yeah. Anything exciting that you're working on that we can see in the coming months from JJ? Uh, man, it's like I, I have like a few ambitious ideas, but I'm always a little bit wary of talking about them too openly. You know, I once I once heard somebody told me like a psychological sort of fact, which is that when you talk about a big exciting idea you have, it kind of stimulates your brain in the same way that it would have if you had actually done the idea. You know, like getting the <laughs> validation just from having the conversation about the idea is as satisfying to you on some weird organic level as actually doing it is which is why you have the phenomenon of people that always talk a good game about their ideas and then never wind up doing them is because in many cases the conversation already sort of scratches that itch that you have that explains so, my documentary chad yeah i started like <laughs> really a year does ago explain your documentary because yeah. <laughs> i was telling everybody yeah i'm doing it. i interviewed yeah, people yeah. for it and it was just and everybody no, was like that's such a good idea i know but like, see, exactly i don't even need to make it that now. itch i'm like well now i've described it all i knew exactly in my head what it looks like so i've kind of seen it <laughs> yes yeah, so you get you get all the praise and and all the rest of it and so that's that's i mean that's all we're in it for in the first place right so if you can do a shortcut i just why want not? likes likes and subs no, it's and like, i'm happy <laughs> I mean, I, I do want, I, I mean, way at the beginning of this, I talked about, uh, you know, that I've made two videos about the Falun Gong cult, which is, you know, a topic that many people have not explored. And, and I, I do feel like that that's something unique that I have sort of made a niche for myself talking about. So I definitely want to do a part three of that sort of trilogy, because there's like a whole sort of like the degree. And I mean, you know, this is a sort of serious topic, but like the degree to which sort of Falun Gong and Falun Gong adjacent people sort of had influence in the Trump administration, particularly in the Trump uh, the Mike Pompeo State Department is, I think, a kind of interesting little story that I feel sort of uniquely placed to tell. So I'd like to I'd like to make a more substantial video about that. I mean, Lord only knows when I'm going to do that. I mean, part of the problem is that I'm very jealous of like, for example, like I have a friend on YouTube, uh, Knowing Better is the name of his channel. Oh, he's yeah. very, very, very talented young man. You love know, his um, videos. Yeah, you know, he's great. And it's like, I think like and I love to talk to him he's a very smart guy and he I, I we have good conversations and all that but it, like I think we're kind of both sort of mutually jealous of each other in a weird way because like I think he 
like he is impressed that I can make these videos every week, but I'm impressed that he can make these really long videos every month, you know, like these really in-depth, well-researched, like, you know, in many cases, like hour-long videos, but he pulls yeah. off hour-long videos well in a way that I just can't, right? So it's like, I my best ideas are like really ambitious and and like require a lot of research and require a lot of time. And it's just really hard to make that kind of video in a weekly kind of basis, you know, particularly now that I'm making like at least a short a week as well. And I do my Washington Post column. Like I just don't, it's just hard to find the time. And that's that's sort of like my, my greatest frustration as a creator is that on some level, like I want to be a substantial guy. Like we were talking about before, you were asking me, Steve, like what kind of change do I want to make in the world? How do I want to use my platform for these kind of like lofty ambitions of influence? And it's 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 difficult to do that on a weekly schedule, I must sort of say. And but again, going back to another thing that we were talking about, it's that anxiety over the fragility of your YouTube channel, <laughs> where it's like if I think like, well, if I take even a week off to make a better video, everything will come around me, and then I'll be you know back working at Old Navy. So it's like <laughs> <laughs> they got great pants. I love their jeans. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good, aren't they? Like performance <laughs> fleece as well. I can't. Beat That's it. right. <laughs> um, I have a million more questions and we're straight out of time again so you're gonna have to come again yeah uh, <laughs> that would be awesome I, I love this yeah. show so much and I love That's talking great. with you guys so yeah. anytime you want me back on keep up the great work you guys you're just one of our favorite people to talk to well, that's very kind if you're interested in hearing more J.J. McCullough, I'm sure you know about his YouTube channel, but J.J. is also a fantastic follow over on Instagram and Twitter, or you can also read his weekly column in the Washington Post. If you're interested in hearing more, Chad and Steve have a podcast, Cash App for short. You can listen on all the major podcasting platforms, including the one that you're probably listening to this on right now. If you are interested in contacting Chad or Steve, send us an email at hi at chatandsteve.com. Share your thoughts, feelings, fears, guest recommendations, show suggestions, anything at all. We'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks for listening, everyone.